Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, where we have smart conversations about pregnancy, parenting, healthcare, politics, and feminism. So we're wrapping up summer here in my home state, Portland, Oregon, and it's downright beautiful. And I am so incredibly grateful for that right now because it's sad and scary out there right now, isn't it? I just watched Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Hare, deliver her daughter's eulogy. Now, Heather was the spectacular young woman who was killed in Charlottesville, Virginia this weekend by a white supremacist in a heinous act of terrorism. You know, this just, this just hit me in my heart. I have daughters about Heather's age who stand up at demonstrations too. I have daughters who speak up for those who can't speak for themselves or who need to have their messages shouted en masse. Heather could have been my daughter or your daughter or you or me. Heather's mother broke my heart, but she also lit my fire. I loved it. She said, I'd rather have my child, but by golly, if I got to give her up, we're going to make it count. Susan, count me in. I really struggled with what to say about Charlottesville. I'm shocked. And yet we really can't pretend this level of hatred and cruelty hasn't been here all along. People are witnessing what happens when hatred is validated and fueled and given permission to speak. This didn't happen last week. It didn't happen last month. It didn't happen with this administration or even this decade. We've been treating each other like crap forever. And racism, violence, and prejudice are ingrained in society. It's in our homes in our video games, all over TV and movies. It's in the way we speak to each other. It's in our businesses. We've normalized it. And, you know, we pretend it isn't as bad as it seems. You know, we pretend it's no big deal that our kids are training for violence with hour after hour of violent games. Well, at the same time, we're shutting off their outlets for creativity and sports and music and education and outdoor play and opportunity. Guys, this is where America is. This is who we are. We'd like to say it isn't, but yeah, it is. Take a look at how we got there and then figure out your part. We're all part of it, all of us. We're all in this together. And those of us who have any level of privilege owe it to those who have less to make sure they get their share. Things have got to change, people. So change it. You do it. I'll do it too. Now, I don't want to keep ranting on this all by myself. I want to rant on this with my good friend, Chris Beard, certified nurse midwife, radical outdoors woman, and mother of two daughters. I also want to talk to Chris about an article we both read recently over on NPR titled, If You Hemorrhage, Don't Clean Up, about maternal mortality, morbidity, and why healthcare providers aren't listening. So, lest I rant any longer... Let's grab Chris for a good long chat. Hello. Hi, Chris. It's Jeannie. Hey, Jeannie. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a slow morning and I'm feeling tired and a little bit weighed down by current events, but 
It's sunny. It's Portland. You and I both know how good that is. It's true. It's a good thing. And there's no smoke. I know. I know. For listeners that, you know, I'm certain you're as enwrapped with Portland weather status as I am. Um, But there were a whole lot of wildfires around us. And so our air quality was horrible until we finally got a little bit of rain this week. Cleaned it up and now we're happy. And it's starting to feel just a little hint of fall in the air, which I am going to ignore completely. Hold on to that summer goodness as long as we can. Yeah, yeah. So, Chris, you are an avid outdoors woman, and I bet that you have big plans for the eclipse coming up on Monday, don't you? Well, that is pretty funny because actually I don't. <laughs> I I have had... Um, uh, more trips up and down the I-5 corridor this summer than I even like to admit to because my children are at summer camp in the San Juan Islands. And so I deposited them there a few weeks ago. And then their camp needed some additional nursing support. So I went up another time to be the nurse for a few days at summer camp and um, And I had to return to Portland to work on one of my little side gigs. And then I went back up for parents weekend. So I've made, what is that? Three round trips up the I-5 corridor in the last two and a half weeks. Yeah. And as it turns out, they need to be retrieved from summer camp the day after the eclipse. So Uh I've been kind of on the fence about, do I just leave? Mm-hmm. while the eclipse is happening and drive while everyone else is paralyzed and looking at the sky? Yeah. Or do I hang around and then drive north? Um, under normal circumstances, I certainly would be out in the desert somewhere Yeah. Uh, looking up at the sky. But this year, that is not going to happen. Well, guess where I'm going to be? Guess where I'm going to be? Uh, so, guess. Just guess. Uh, New York. No, darn it. I'm going to be in an airplane oh, on my way back from Los Angeles, and I'm going to miss the whole darn thing, unless I happen to be in a spot in the air where I can see it. And, you know, listeners are good, are getting to the point where they're wondering, why on earth are they talking like this? The eclipse that's happening on August 21st is all that is happening here in Portland. And there are, we know, other current events going on in the world, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the eclipse, my friends, is everything. And I am kind of a nut about this stuff. I love it. Um, You know, if there's a super moon, I'll drive out and see it. If there's a, you know, meteor showers, oh, yeah, I'll lay down in my front yard and watch it. And I have been looking forward to this for so long. And I had to book some travel this week. And, boy, flights were so cheap on Monday. So I just, you know, my return flight on Monday... And then I realized, oh, what have I done? I'm going to miss the whole darn thing. I'm so disappointed. Well, where did did you live in 1979 when we had an eclipse? Oh, this is a good one. This is a very personal story. And I'm only going to tell a little bit of it. But I was in an airplane in 1979 when that eclipse happened with uh, the man that is now my husband. And we had just shared our first kiss. That is so sweet. I know. That I know. So sweet. Yeah, and we just um celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary yesterday. Congratulations. So, that is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this time I'm going to be in an airplane for the eclipse with my daughter and, you know, I I think that that will bode well for good things to come. 
But Chris, let's talk about let's talk about something serious for a minute. <clears throat> I um, am I am blown away by the events that happened in Virginia last weekend, and I am struggling really hard with knowing what to say and what to do. And when that happens to me, when I am actually speechless, that's a pretty clear sign that it's not my turn to speak. It's my turn to listen. So what I want to say about it, about Charlottesville and what happened there, I want to keep it short and sweet. And then I am going to, I'd like to know what you think. And then I'm going to just shut up. I'm going to go listen to my, you know, my recent guest, Joe Saxton's podcast about leadership. I am going to listen to the people who are already leading, the people who are already fighting this battle that we need to learn from. And I'm going to encourage my friends who are in the same boat as me to do the same. Start listening hard. What about you, Chris? Well, as a white woman raising non-white children, it is hard to know what to say. But I'm going to veer a little bit away from... Um, never mind. I'm, I'm going to be straight on here. It's, it's really it. clear to me that if we say nothing, we are part of the problem. And yeah, that's true. I, I am not a woman of color. I look around me and I see, uh, people of color staring this in the face and I see mm-hmm. people beside them staring it in the face, but we have to speak up against this travesty and we have a president who is not a leader who is not a leader of the people of the United States the people of the United States are a melting pot of black white Asian um, people of Indian descent uh, Catholics Jewish people Buddhists um, non-believers gay lesbian straight transgender and if you can't all of those people then you have no business in that office. And I think that the fact that there was a delay in any kind of responsive outrage by the person who was our president, and then there was um, a non-statement, and now there, is, now there is falsehood being promoted, that there is some kind of alt-left, when really it's just people like you and me standing up to hate this is a bad situation we're in. Yeah. And it's really, it's bad. really bad. And it is unbelievable that it's happening in our lifetime. This is not the history books. Yeah. This it is, is unbelievable. Because just a couple of years ago, we were kind of you know, thinking about how far we had come, how much further there is to go. But, you know, we'd come a ways. We'd come a ways. And now I, 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 I uh, saw some commenter or heard some commenter or read it somewhere. What we're seeing is a president who is like all of the air on all of the um, Thanksgiving Day parades in New York. All of the air was let out of them at once. And they're all just bashing around, destroying everything in sight. And that's what this is. What That's what's happening here. That's what it feels like. And yeah. I, you know, there's. 
there's many quotes out there by various people from history, and I'm not sure who this quote is from, but I read something recently that said, nice people made the best Nazis. Yeah, 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 yeah. I read that too. And I'm not going to be a nice person. I'm not sure how I'm going to channel my energy. But, you know, Oregon, as beautiful as it is, as much as I love it, is a very racist state. Yeah, it is. And, and we had that tragedy on the, on the train just, gosh, a month or two ago. Correct. And my personal feeling is that that was an act of domestic terrorism. Yes. And the fact that the victims were young black were young black girls. Let's be clear, they weren't women. They were they seventeen were, they were years old. They were young yeah. black girls. That's why it wasn't called domestic terrorism, because the right. victims were not white. Right. And I may have told you this before, but I I work for a big organization and we um we are required every year to do a bunch of online trainings about confidentiality, about HIPAA, about a hazardous waste and all those things. And this year they added a new module for us and it's all online training. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, about domestic terrorism. And it was, it was something like responding to threats in the hospital environment or something like that. And who do you think the domestic terrorist was? It was a white man in a wife beater shirt with a gun. Yep. That's the biggest threat to me and my family. It's not always has been too. It always has been. So, you know, Oregon has a bad history of, of racism and of being a place where we're mostly white. That's the truth. Um, Yes. And it's hard to reconcile the place that I love with that kind of history, but I think we have to call it out. I think we have to say, you know, that is where we came from. And I read something recently um, about, People saying, you know, when they're when they're listening to all these racist comments and seeing all these racial um, these racial attacks happen, like, you know, the two Indian men who were shot in a restaurant somewhere in the Midwest, the tragedy on the Max train in Portland and now Charlottesville, that this is not who we are as a nation. But the truth of it is, is this is who we are. Our nation was founded on the backs of slaves. Our nation has always been racist. And for the last, I don't know, 40 years, things have been better. And the the more um, humanity, people, I don't know how to say this, but we have been better the last 30 or 40 years. And now Mm -hmm. it feels like we've just gone back into the abyss where all this... You know, there were always probably people who were racist. There were always probably people who believed that only white people have strong intelligence and all those other things we know not to be true. But they were hidden. And the current president has unleashed a monster and has given it food. So we have to find a way to stop it. And I think the only way we're going to do that is twofold to listen to people smarter than me who are fighting and who are um, people of color and Mm -hmm. to speak up. Yeah. Yeah. But it is hard. It's easy to feel paralyzed, but to be paralyzed and stay silent is to agree. 
Yeah. Well, I don't feel paralyzed and I don't feel like, I, I think that what you just said was so eloquently put that I may not need to add anything to it except for I agree wholeheartedly, except for to ask a question. And that is, what do we do now? We talk, we listen, we practice really, really exaggerated acts of kindness to each other. We look each other in the eye, we ask questions, we show up, and what else? That's the big question, and that's the answer that I'm going to try to listen to. I'm going to listen for that. Absolutely. I, the answer will be there. When you ask that question, the answer will come. So, Chris, let's shift gears. Um, you know, we've we've kind of dived right into it today. And you've been on the pod a few times, but I'll still ask you again. Who are you and what do you do? Um, I am a nurse midwife. I live in Portland, Oregon. I have been in practice for almost 25 years. I have been working for a large HMO for 20 years. Um, I have two daughters, both who are adopted from China. One is 15 and one is 12. And I am an avid outdoors person. Yes, you are. And uh, the reason that I specifically wanted to get you on today, actually, I, we were going to get you on last week to talk about this article, but then you went to your kid's camp. It was great. Um, I wanted to talk to you about an article that has been circulating in the birth world and all over Facebook. And and the title of that article um, is kind of, uh, if you hemorrhage, don't clean it up. And it's about the prevalence of obstetric emergencies and women's experiences trying to get appropriate health care. And, you know, in this article, case after case of emergency situations, hemorrhage, blood clots, preeclampsia, infection, all of it were presented one after another. And the effect was pretty chilling. And, you know, it was also, I thought, intentionally scary and something that was illuminating, but might leave a lot of mothers thinking that that's normal, that it's normal to have emergencies like that, or that it happens all the time. And it's not. It's serious when it does happen, but, you know, it concerns me that that, that is the impression that a lot of women are going to be left with. And, you know, most of the American obstetric healthcare system is designed around preventing and forestalling emergencies. We do all kinds of interventions for just in case. Um, but when the, you know, when the shit is really hitting the fan, too many women have a hard time getting doctors to pay attention. They're told, oh, it's anxiety or pain is normal or things like, you know, one woman I know said she was bleeding too heavily a couple of days after giving birth. And she went to her obstetrician who said, well, you haven't had a period for nine months, so I don't see why you're crying about a little blood now. And you know, that's why I wanted to talk to you, Chris. I wanted to talk this through with you. What do you think of that article? Well, I thought that article raised a number of really interesting points. Um, first of all, I believe mm -hmm. that birth is normal. 
and that 98% of the time we don't really need to intervene. That's my personal philosophy. However, I think that part of believing in the normalcy of birth is recognizing mm-hmm. when things are not normal. And what I what I saw in that article or what I took away was even though our current birth culture is set up for every possible contingency. You have to have IV access in case you have a hemorrhage. You have to have active management of third stage in case you have a hemorrhage. You have to have beta strep screening and treatment in case your baby is going to be the one in however many thousand that gets sick from beta strep. You know, all these things that we do for the just in case, but then when people really actually had a problem, no one was listening to them. Right. That's what I found to be very interesting. And um, I feel very fortunate that I work in a model of team care where we have two physicians and a midwife covering our labor floor 24 hours a day. We have an exceptional nursing staff. And I I felt pretty confident reading that article that that would never happen in the setting that I currently work. That if somebody started having abnormal vital signs or they were bleeding too much, people would listen Mm -hmm. to the patient and people would Mm -hmm. listen to the nurse and the patient would get care. But, you know, I've certainly worked in other settings where that wasn't necessarily the situation. And so I, I found the article really fascinating because I feel like even though our culture kind of promotes and rewards the abnormal, like how many pregnant women do you know that are in the grocery store or the bookstore or at the park with their dog and someone comes up to them and tells them the horrible birth story. All the time. All the time. All the time. It's kind of like people coming up and touching a pregnant woman's Mm -hmm. belly. And it's, it's, they do it without permission. They do it without regard for whether the woman wants or needs to hear that kind of story. And so I found it really interesting that many of the women who were sharing their stories had a need to be heard. Yeah. I mean, I, I should, maybe interesting is the wrong word. I'm, I'm glad that there's a platform for women to share their perceptions of their birth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in reading, you know, I posted that article on Facebook because I thought it was really interesting. And, um, one of the women that I grew up with who was, um, very smart Um, I looked up to her a lot in high school, even though we weren't close friends, responded to my Facebook post and shared her birth story. And she had, uh, she was a couple years older than me. So she had an emergency C-section for her first birth. And it sounded like she had a birth, she had the birth without labor. So I was thinking, well, she must've had a placenta previa or oligohydramnios or some reason that they were concerned about her baby's status for her to have a C-section mm-hmm. without labor. And then I don't, I'm not sure how many other kids she had, but with her youngest kid, it sounded like she had a placenta accreta mm-hmm. and she had an emergency hysterectomy without her permission and, or her consent to save her life. But what she remembers is what the nurse told her when she woke up, which was, I mean, this is a woman who, was going to have a baby, has a baby, 
wakes up without a uterus, and the nurse says to her, well, most of our new moms are happy. So I think one of the things that that article showed me is that women remember what was said to them, whether their birth was yesterday or 25 years ago. And what we say to women is important, and we don't often acknowledge women's negative experiences about birth. Right. We did we, you know, minimize them. We, we Correct. take what they're saying and we shrug. And, you know, it, there's a bit of an authoritarian dynamic that's going on in any hospital room and the patient should be at the top of that platform. But too often what happens is that she is at the bottom and totally. the person on, you know, who has more authority than her is the nurse. And the person who has more authority than the nurse is the obstetrician or midwife. And if people aren't listening to each other up and down the chain on that platform, that's where the mistakes really happen. Because we're watching for the, you know, really unusual, real emergencies to happen. What we're not doing is just listening for the subtle cues when a patient or a nurse says, I've got a problem. And I remember a birth I had you know, I was attending a birth as a labor nurse. It was decades ago. Um, and my patient was bleeding. She was bleeding. She'd had her baby. Her placenta was out. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of bleeding that's going to happen. But, you know, you get used to looking at that as a labor nurse. And you know when is it, it's normal and when it's too much. And I was worried. And I told the doctor that I was working with. And he told me not to worry about it. He took a peek and said, nope, she's not bleeding. Well, she was, um, but he said she wasn't. And she continued to bleed heavily. And I asked the doctor to come back and check. And he told me to knock it off. That's what That was what he told me. Knock that off. Um, very dismissive, you know, and, and I don't know what was going on there, but that pissed me off. I had worked with this doc before and had some issues, and I I had saved every one of this patient's chuck pads, which are the absorbent pads that go under your butt after you deliver, and it soaks up all the fluids. I'd saved them all, and um, he wouldn't come in, so I brought them in a red bag to the desk, and I showed him, and believe me, not much time had gone by here because I was not going to let it go, and... I told him if he didn't get in there and do something, I was going to the department head with that bag. And he called me a name, but he got off his butt, and that patient needed a DNC for a piece of retained placenta that he hadn't noticed post-delivery. And after it was all over, he told me to never speak to him that way again or show him up like that in front of other nurses, or he'd have me fired. And I told him if I had to, I'd do it again, and he'd better back off, and he did. And that doctor didn't last very long at that facility because, you know, a lot of people butted heads with him over authoritarian issues. But this story is repeated all over the damn country, all over the damn world. Right. Yeah. It's all over the place, you know. So we're doing this fine dance between preparing for every emergency, but then not really accepting when it is an emergency. Right. Yeah, it's very, it's interesting. It is. And I think that it's because sometimes it's subtle. You know, real emergencies can be very subtle at the beginning. Mm -hmm. They, They don't 
often, you know, show up with bells and whistles to let you know. I mean, sometimes, but sometimes it's subtle, True. like in the case of a subtle bleed that goes on too long or preeclampsia that isn't showing all of the classic symptoms. So what you have to do is you have to look for the subtlety. And if a, a physician is placed in a position where, oh shit, I didn't notice. Well, you know, it's natural to feel f- scared, insecure, and defensive because physicians are human beings. Now, you know, the appropriate response then is get over yourself real quick and get to work. Some people don't have that capability as be- as well as others. Yeah, the appropriate response is, thank you. I'm so glad that you were in there taking her vital signs and noticing when her pulse shot up to 120 and her blood pressure dropped. That's yeah. the appropriate response yeah. is thank you. But too often this weird power differential, this, you know, it's sometimes it's male, female, sometimes it's doctor, nurse, but it is mm-hmm. that weird power thing that, that yeah. gets in the way. Of it good does. Care. It's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Another issue that I thought, you know, we've touched on this a little bit already is that, you know, that article was case after case after case of honest-to-God, legit emergencies. Um, But too many patients think that they're having emergencies when, you know, they're not. They're told, you need an emergency C-section when actually they just weren't dilating quickly enough. Or, you know, it wasn't really an emergency, it's just slow-paced. Or they're told their baby's heart is too slow, and even though it resolves itself when they reposition the patient, um, you know, they're told it's a great big emergency and they need surgery. And it happens all the time. And so what we're doing is we're kind of normalizing this rush to the OR for things that probably don't need an operation. And I think that you and I have talked about this before that, um, you know, if you need a C-section, thank God you can get them done here. But they are one of the few surgeries that we do that are still a huge gaping incision. Most surgeries are now, you know, microsurgeries. You get a little half-inch incision and they go in with equipment and they sew you up. C-sections aren't like that. It's, you know, a four-inch incision that goes through many, many layers of tissue. And it's, it's a, a big, big deal. deal. Most, most C-sections that are done today aren't actually emergencies. Though women will tell their story that way because they were told the story that way and because they need to feel like it was okay to do that. And, you know, our hospital has gone to um, different language, at least among the staff for C-sections, scheduled, Mm -hmm. urgent, and emergency. And we have this guideline where once we make a decision about the fact that a C-section needs to be done, it needs to be done within 30 minutes, whether it's an, a true emergency for fetal indications or not, um, to kind of standardize mm-hmm. the procedure. But I totally mm-hmm. agree that this, this language of emergency is very misleading. And, mm-hmm. you know, all over the country organizations are starting to look at their C-section rates and they're starting to implement programs to prevent the first C-section, which is really the key to preventing later C-sections. And we know that the more C-sections a person has, the higher risk each each individual C-section is for that mother. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have a risk of Mm -hmm. perforating 
abdominal organs, you can have a risk of extra bleeding, you can have a risk of needing to lose your uterus, all kinds of risks the more C-sections you have. So, you know, a lot of emphasis is being placed on preventing the first C-section. And, you know, in Oregon, there's something called the Oregon Perinatal Collaborative that came out recently with um, sort of revised guidelines for giving women more time in labor to have a normal birth, to have a vaginal birth, giving and, and different, giving babies time to recover from fetal heart rate tracings that don't look great. So it's very, um, you know, I think we learn as we go and I'm grateful to see that there is new, that there is now seems to be across the board recognition that although C-section is a great tool, we would prefer women to have a vaginal birth if it's possible. It's better for them and it's better for their baby. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I saw another article this week that um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but it said that they were looking at um, issues of shaming in the patient-physician dynamic. And it turns out that OBGYN physicians were the doctors who um, used shaming, specifically slut-shaming and weight-shaming the most. And that they often came across as being all about their patient's safety and health, but ended up imposing their own moral values or outdated stereotypes or personal agendas or, um, you know, even their ideas about weight, body weight that aren't necessarily accurate or helpful. And it um, impacted patients really deeply that they had come to a place where they felt like they could get, they could trust someone to give them good care. And instead, they walked away feeling shamed. And in many, not many, but some cases that were in this, talked about in this article, it just kind of shut them down from going and getting healthcare anymore. I have not seen that article, but that is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Because you think about the intimate relationship between an OBGYN provider, whether it's a midwife or a yeah. physician, with their patient. And... I mean, really, there is no more vulnerable time for a woman than while she is pregnant and preparing for the birth Mm -hmm. of her child. Um, At least I I think that is an incredibly vulnerable time for a woman in life. And to have, you know, it kind of reflects back to what I said, that people remember what was said to them when they were pregnant or in labor or giving birth. They remember. Mm -hmm. And so to hear that OBGYNs are... Um, at the top of the shame, excuse me, the shame pyramid is interesting and disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my mom is, I'm in my fifties. My mom is in her seventies and I was her first child. And I believe that she still has some residual shame from when she was pregnant with me. She still occasionally will tell the story about how she wouldn't eat or drink for the several days before she went to the obstetrician because he was always mad at her that she had gained too much weight. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that was 50 years ago. Yeah. 50-something years ago. 
and I'm in a group practice and, you know, I think that it's hard, you know, it's hard for us in healthcare not to let our prejudices come through on some level, whether we know we have them or not. Because but you're human I, beings. Because you're a human being okay. and you've got your stuff. Yeah. You know, you've got your stuff. So I, as it turns out, am the size friendly midwife in our practice. Um, and I have had numerous people come to me because they don't want to hear about their weight. Yeah. And they don't want to be shamed about it. Yeah. And I feel like that's a big, um, it's a, it's a big compliment and it's a big responsibility. Mm -hmm. So weight is a big issue during pregnancy. And, you know, I, I don't, I think that, you know, we, we saw and make, I think we're continuing to see a lot of young women who are, um, you know, maybe they don't have access or don't understand what they should be eating. They don't have access to healthy foods or they're using their pregnancy as an opportunity to just sort of, you know, do whatever they want. And so, you know, we do see women who are gaining 60, 80 pounds in a pregnancy and it's unhealthy for both she and her baby, not only during that pregnancy, but going forward. So sometimes those conversations have to be had, but our culture of, you know, you walk into your doctor's office and the first thing they do is put you on the scale and then your scale is jotted down. And whether somebody says something or not, it's an, it's a moment. You're having a moment and it doesn't feel good sometimes. Um, you know, I think that we have to change the way that we have that moment, you know, both as patients and as providers. We have to change the moment. That's our responsibility. So what would you, what, I mean, the OBGYN visit is, unless you're in a group prenatal setting, Mm -hmm. is probably follows the same script. Yeah. You know, the medical assistant gets you from the lobby. They put you on the scale. Yeah. Then they take you to the room. They take your blood pressure. They ask you a few questions. You sit on the chair or you sit on the table. Your provider comes in. They spend their minutes with you and then they leave. So yeah. what would, how would you change that moment? I'm just curious. Well, one, one model that I've heard about that I have seems pretty simple is um, don't have somebody else weigh the patient. Ask the patient to weigh herself and jot down her own numbers. You know, it's still getting a weight and putting it down, but it puts the control over that moment in the patient's hands. And they can actually do that in private. You know, mm-hmm. you can put the scale on the other side of the room. And yeah, I bet there's going to be a bit of an honor system there, but you know, that's one way that could possibly go. Um, I think maybe having a conversation with your patient early on in the relationship saying, hey, this is part of it. Is there, do you have any preferences on how we handle this? What would you like me to do if I am concerned? Mm -hmm. You know, ask your patient how you would like them to handle that moment, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and then if if you've got a patient who is just really in trouble with her weight, well, you know, pull out all your compassion and all of your best talking points and have the conversation that you, uh, you have to have as a responsible provider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't well, know that I have the solution to it, Chris. Yeah. You know, I know in group prenatal visits, like things like centering pregnancy care, Patients Mm -hmm. do 
weigh themselves. And I think they may even take their own blood pressure with an auto cuff. Yeah. And, you know, basically the more power and control we can give back to the woman during her pregnancy, the mm-hmm. better in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the power dynamic earlier, but I think that, um, issues about your body, including your weight or, um, you know, you were talking about slut shaming yeah. your weight or your number of sexual partners or your kind of sexual partners. Those are very core things for some people and handling mm-hmm. them in the most sensitive manner possible requires a lot of thought mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because some people, you know, their weight has never been a problem. It's not a problem from for them when they're pregnant and it's a no, it's a non-issue. But for mm-hmm. other people, you know, people who are recovering from eating disorders or people who still struggle, getting on the scale each time they come in is is like a little mini trauma for them. Yeah. I have for a pa- lot of women. And I have patients who yeah. who decline to be weighed. Uh-huh. And you know, truthfully, yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know. And I I you know, when I first meet people and I see them for their prenatal care, um, I just tell them if I, I'm not going to, you know, when it comes to your weight, here's the recommended healthy weight gain in pregnancy. If it looks to me like you're on the track of gaining 50 pounds, we're going to need to talk about it. But other than that, I'm probably not going to talk to you about it. Perfect. Um, and, and that, that works for me and it works for some of my patients, but I'm, I'm guessing it probably doesn't work for others. So I'm going to have to reflect on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's sort of the reason why we talk about current events and, you know, articles that we see here on the podcast, because really what we're trying to do is present different ideas, present different conversations, concepts, theories, and invite reflection. Um, ultimately, what happens is up to the woman. The choices right. are ultimately hers, right? even mm-hmm. though too often she doesn't realize that actually it's all up to her. She can say no. She can change providers. She can make choices. Sometimes those choices are very, very limited. And you know, that is a, that is something that we need to work on in a much broader spectrum spectrum. Yeah. Well, Chris, we've been talking for quite some time. You got any parting words of wisdom for us? Parting words of wisdom. That's kind of a challenge. I think, (laughs) you know, I think in the current environment, um, looking in your heart, speaking the truth, speaking truth to power and listening, asking for wise counsel. I think those are the things that are going to help us as we move forward. These are some really rough times. Yeah. These are some really rough times. And, you know, as, as a white woman, I am protected on a certain level, Mm -hmm. but I'm outraged and I don't want to be asleep. Amen, sister. Amen, sister. So, I, I would just urge all of us to speak up, speak truth to power and realize that if we stay silent, we are complicit. Yes. But silence and listening are two different things. So I want to add to that. Listen 
to the women who have been the leaders all along. Listen to them. Go find them. Go seek them out and listen to what they have to say. Ask them what to do. Ask them how you can help. It really comes down to service. You know, usually, Chris, I close this out with a couple of, you know, my usual questions, but I'm not going to do that today because I think that what you had to say is a, is powerful. So thank you. Thank you for coming on this week. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for having me. I always value our conversations. Well, good. Well, you'll be on again soon. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Jeannie. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. That article Chris and I were talking about was called If You Hemorrhage, Don't Clean Up. Advice for Mothers Who Almost Died. And you can find that over on npr.org. It was published on August 3rd. The other one about fat shaming? Dang it, I can't find it. And when I do, I'll tweet the link. Sorry about that. That's it for this week, everybody. Here's hoping and praying that next week will be safer, kinder, and way less weird. Our guest today was Chris Beard, certified nurse midwife over at Kaiser Permanente here in Portland. I'm Jean Faulkner, and you can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. You can also pick up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, anywhere books are sold. Tweet me at Jean Faulkner. Email me your questions and comments and concerns. Jean at jeanfaulkner.com. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Go ahead and leave me some reviews, nice ones if you will, over on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I would very much appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk again next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.